You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast, where we equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Bodker, and I'm joined with my good friends, Dr. Stephen Kistler, an epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Public Health, and Dr. Mark Kistler, who is a doctor at the University of Colorado Hospital. This is two times in a row that all three of us uh, are together. This is literally the greatest miracle of my life in the past <laughs> three hours. See how you really narrowly confined that? Uh, right. yeah. how's, how's it going, guys? <laughs> yeah, it sounds good. We're going to be talking about defining our terms here. Yes, that's totally. Right. That's important. That actually is, that, that actually is that's really appropriate. Con- that's content. Yeah, it's yeah we actually, it's, it's amazing what the subconscious mind does. For those of you who have no idea what we're talking about, we just riffed for about 20 minutes what we're going to talk about, and that was part of it, and then my mind just went there in the intro. So, wow, the power of the subconscious. So it's good, you th- good to see you, Matt. Yeah, yeah, say, yeah. We didn't even get to that part. It's good to see you, Mark. Good to see you, Stephen. Whatever. Let's just get to the news. Who cares about a relationship? Um, so a few things. Uh, again, the preface. Uh, one thing I want to say, we're changing our release times. We used to do Monday, Wednesday, Friday. We're going to move to two times a week. The big reason is we want, as things are shifting and uh, the news isn't quite as aggressive as it was two weeks ago, we really want to focus on bringing better content. And Monday, Wednesday, Friday is great, but it, it's difficult for us who have multiple jobs to kind of keep that content rich and engaging. So Monday and Thursday is what we're going to do right now. Uh, we have a guest coming on on Thursday. We'll talk about it at the end of the show, if I remember, because it's not in the notes. As well as, please, please, please uh, leave a review. Uh, it just takes a couple of seconds. Go on iTunes, leave a, whatever star you think it deserves to make a comment. It helps us move up in the ratings. We'd really appreciate it. And if you have um, some financial resources, I know this is a hard time to help support us, not to pay us, but just to help us get the equipment to have better audio and then uh, help to offset the editing so we can keep this going and have better content. I would greatly, greatly appreciate it uh, to get some of this stuff purchased uh, at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash pandemic podcast. Check that out. It'll be in the show notes. Okay, let's get right into it. First of all, how was the weekend? Mark has some really big news for the weekend. A lot of great things happening. Uh, what, what's 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 in your what's going on in your farm? Well, so yeah, <laughs> that's exactly it. We were uh, out in the out in the yard. We've got the garlic coming up. Uh, we've got a couple tiny shoots of arugula that have started to poke through. Nice. Uh, a couple little snap peas. So we've had a we've had a nice warm stretch in the Denver metro area the last couple of weeks. And you kind of it, different from you know Matt. Matt, you were saying your wife had to kind of drag you out to the garden the other week, and <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I have sort of the opposite problem. Oh I'm yeah, be like dragged back in from the dirt. <laughs> yeah, it's just that's, uh, that's my that's that's my happy place. That's awesome. Just FYI, before we get to Stephen, uh, in my garden, there is something maybe not quite the same. There are some tow trucks, some dump trucks, some broken wheels, and that's about it. So that's what's in my garden right now. So Stephen, what's, what, how was your weekend, man? Uh, yeah, it was good. I mean, I'm, I'm living the, uh, urban life over here in Boston. So unfortunately there is a, there's no garden to be had, but, um, I've, um, Allie and I have gotten into bread making lately. So we made, I think it's like three loaves this week. Oh man. Start selling <laughs> uh, them. is artisan style. She's been working through this book. That's, um, really just <laughs> awesome. And so, uh, we, uh, I almost don't want to say it too loud because I know that, that a lot of people are having trouble getting their hands on flour right now, but yeah. thankfully we had enough. Your, your to, brother included. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll ship you some. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. For this ship the finished product. That's all we need. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's probably the best thing. And so, by the way, good, even, even though you're living in the city life and you're kind of in an apartment, whatever, I just want to encourage you that about 10 years ago when I, where I worked, uh, this might've been your eyes' time at CU. I'm not sure. There was one of the students who actually bought a goat and it lived in their house, house with them. 
in a room <laughs> for about four months before the neighbors actually evicted the goat because it kept doing its loud sounds in the middle of the night and uh, we yeah, had to get rid of it. So encouraging to you still, you too can have a farm, Stephen, in the context Fantastic. of your apartment. Okay. All right. I'm sure the listeners were very uh, enlightened by what we just talked about. <laughs> so let's get into some good news. Uh, I feel like a lot of things kind of happened over the weekend, but one thing I wanted to start to riff with, this actually happened, oh, at least the article I saw was over a week ago now, but it's been kind of mulling over my head and I wanted to throw it out to both Mark and Steven. And uh, it was back, I think here, let me, let me click on this. It was the New York Times, March 19th. It says younger adults make up big portion of coronavirus hospitalizations in U.S. Younger adults make up, oops, it's repeating the title twice. So I'll go back to the sub headline. New CDC data shows that nearly 40% of patients sick enough to be hospitalized were, were age uh, 20 to 54, but the risk of dying was significantly higher in older people. So my question to you guys is, um, is there really any evidence? Is this true? And what does this mean for us in light of other countries? Stephen, you want to start first? Sure. Yeah. So um I mean, it, certainly the, uh, the the headline sounds alarming, and I I will say that I haven't had a chance to really dive into it. Sure. Um, so I you know I haven't looked at the specific data that they're looking at, but but there is there's an important element about just like interpreting numbers as they're thrown at you, and there are all sorts of ways to slice numbers that that make them sound uh, you know really sound any way you like them to. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, it, I, we were talking about this sort of rough calculation earlier. So if, if we imagine, as seems to be the case, that for the most part, people under the age 20 are pretty, you know, are, are very low risk for, uh, for severe illness. The age group between 20 and 55 is, ticks up about 35 years. And if you expect the average lifespan is about 80 years, then there's another 25 years after that. So if everybody were at equal risk of infection, then you would expect about 60% of hospitalizations to fall in that younger age group that we just mentioned. Uh, it turns out that it's 40. So, so in some sense, this is really only telling us something that we already knew, which is that the illness is more severe for older age groups. But when you say it like this, it makes it sound like it's a lot more severe for younger age groups. Sure. And, and I don't want to downplay the fact, I mean, the coronavirus infection can, it certainly can be severe really no matter what age you are. But as far as I can tell, this isn't really necessarily telling us anything new. I don't want to stand by that totally. I, I need to look sure. at it, you know, in, in depth. But to my ears, something that initially sounded alarming might not be quite so much. Mm-hmm. And then, Mark, on your end, on the clinical side, just with hospitalizations and younger people, uh, what do you what do you kind of see in, in between the the numbers here? Yeah, you know, I think I think the big thing is this is where what we call subgroup analyses are really important. So when we're talking about you know why you have um, a higher pr- percentage of the people, you know, and you take all of the people who are hospitalized as your baseline, the that the individuals who are hospitalized may have different characteristics than the population as a whole. Um, and so it's, I think it's just really important to be aware of the fact that that's not as if it were a random sampling of necessarily mm-hmm. coronavirus only you know, uh, related pathology, um, but there may be other things going on, other underlying conditions, even potentially, um, and I don't, I don't know, uh, Stephen, if you touched on this, but there may be more people in that younger age group just in the population to begin with. And so not only is it that the age distribution is uh, such that we, but you also take into account just the number of young people versus the number of people. Um, and so all of those things, all that to say those sorts of single line statistics can be really deceptive sometimes um, in terms of what, what the question we're asking is, how do we understand this pathogen better? How do we understand the characteristics of this virus? And more immediately, how do I understand my risk, you know, my, and my family's risks, my loved 
loved ones' risks. Um, and so I think there's a temptation to kind of extrapolate immediately from a headline like that to, oh, the risk of, you know, my college-aged, you know, your, your son or something like that, that the, those are the things that you're, you know, thinking about. And I kind of want to put a bookmark on that because you just mentioned about going back to, yeah, what are the risks? And and I know I think we're getting to this about this this kind of new revelation maybe of how the coronavirus might be affecting inside the body a little bit. Uh, because I have family uh, as well. Uh, my nieces and nephews, some of them have, uh, you know, uh, difficult either heart issues or things like that that's, that can be concerning. And so, you know, how to know exactly what, what demographics at risk. We know things like, uh, you know, uh, you know, what is it, uh, respiratory disease and uh, diabetes and uh, cancer to some extent and high blood pressure. Uh, these things are kind of the clear top three ones, but people, other people have other th- things and it makes them worry as well. So I want to put a bookmark on that and go deeper into that when we talk about the, maybe the antiviral uh, stuff that's going on right now. But a few more things I kind of want I saw in the news as well. The Chinese, they have a positive test cases. This seemed alarming when I read it, I think this morning, that apparently there were a handful, at least, I who knows, with China, that it originally tested positive. And then after a couple of weeks, whatever, it tested negative. And now they're positive again. So I guess throwing this back out to you guys is, is there any relevance here or is this just error? I think, you know, uh, so again, we have to get a little bit more data, but I do think that we need to be conscious of the fact that these tests are not 100% uh, sensitive. And so, and I use that term um, uh, kind of trying to be precise because any test that we do in medicine um, has a, a sensitivity and a specificity associated with it. Okay. So specificity is something that tells us, and for, for instance, the, for the coronavirus test in particular, we think it's very, very specific. Meaning if Matt, if you test positive on this test, we're essentially 100% sure that you actually have coronavirus. Um, so the, the incidence of those false positives is low in mm-hmm. this, te- this testing. Okay. However, the sensitivity uh, or the incidence that's related to the incidence of false negatives can actually be a little bit higher in this case. And okay. so um, we do see that occasionally in very high-risk patients who we have a high clinical suspicion, the current recommendation is that we can repeat testing in those patients because the initial test may be actually a false negative, um, meaning that it doesn't pick up every single case of coronavirus, you know, with the the first initial test. And so that sort of thing, that that sort of lower sensitivity, you know, even in a relatively good test when it's spread over a population can create some, a non-significant number of false negatives. And there's a potential that at least part of what we're seeing with these people who are positive than negative than positive again, um, could be related to test characteristics rather than viral characteristics. Okay. Um, and so that's something to keep in mind. Uh, another bit of big news that I saw this morning that I wanted to share with everybody, it sounded pretty promising, that uh, in our home state, Colorado, Telluride, it seems like it would be the first town in the country to test all 8,000 residents uh, for antibodies. So I just wanted to make this and just kind of throw it out to Mark and Steven and, and riff on what's the significance of this? Yeah. So uh, from my perspective, I think that this is great news and epidemiologically speaking, hugely significant, you know, so it's it's just one town. But one of the key things that we've been really missing so far as epidemiologists and trying to sort out is just where exactly we are in this epidemic curve. 
Um, and part of the reason we don't know is because of what we were just talking about before, yeah. both the, the the limited number of tests and also the specificity and sensitivity of the tests and everything that goes into that. So we can you know we can build all these models to to make projections and try to understand you know how many people are and might soon become ill. But to a certain extent, we're we're kind of flying. It's going to say flying the ship blind. Um, I don't know. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> it's been a long day, guys. Let's avoid cruise ship metaphors. That's true. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, you know, it's it's not entirely blind, but but we we don't really know how many people have been infected, and that really the only way to do that is to do this kind of. Um, it sounds like what they're doing is serological sampling, trying to figure out who people have antibodies, and that that'll give us a much better sense of how many people have been infected. And and uh, you know, as as with anything, it's only when you know the past that you can really begin to say something meaningful about the future. And mm -hmm. so I think that that's exactly what they're trying to do. So hopefully, we can repeat that kind of thing in other places to get a much better sense across the U.S where we're at. And um, that will help a lot to make some of these projections that we're trying to make. Great. And then curious, would this, even this is in Telluride, which is obviously a small population, you're saying it's significant. So would this data be significant to the whole country? I mean, does this, is this going to be localized just to Telluride or will this give significance or is it just too small to say to the rest on some level? Like, oh, this shows that maybe we've been in this a little bit longer than we thought or we're, we're coming out of it or is this way too, way too small? Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> any information is better than no information. <laughs> sure, and, you know, yeah. uh, it, it 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 will. I think that it'll help us understand how we can interpret what's been going on in other places, mm -hmm. even if it can't necessarily tell us exactly what's going on. Because you know, then then we can sort of extrapolate. You know, based on the number of tests that Telluride has run, then if if you were to scale that up by a certain factor so that it matched another city, you know, what would we expect for the serology there too? Mm -hmm. There is a lot of geographic variation in in where like which places are yeah. getting hit at what time and with what severity. So sure. the generalization will be, will be limited, but it'll be useful. I mean, uh, the, the, the benefit from having no towns doing this to one town doing this is massive. Okay. And the benefit from one town to two is, is something, but at least having one is going to be great. Okay. Great. So. Awesome. In light of my desire to want to know everything about the future, Stephen and Mark, because you know I'm not the scientist. You guys are. You guys are the numbers for me. Just tell me how what my future will be. This is, we got this from Dr. Fauci again. I saw I must, this. I, I must have skipped that class in med school. I never had any med classes. So I don't think. <laughs> I, yeah, I yeah, yeah, you, sorry, yeah, that, that sorry, was. Man. Yeah. No worries. That's why you have me, right? So, so we have this this article from Dr. Fauci saying that uh, he predicts potentially uh, uh, maybe an average. This is an average between a hundred thousand and two hundred thousand that, that that may actually die from the coronavirus in our country. And I read the article. And I think I've read two of them. And the one thing that was mildly disturbing to me, or just the fact that there was no timeline for this, there was no well by when. I mean, it's one thing to say a hundred and hundred to two hundred thousand may die. By the end of April, that sounds quite alarming. It's one thing to say by the end of you know the twenty thirty uh, that we'll have one hundred twenty thousand. So, I just want to throw back to Mark and Stephen and just saying, you know, where does this come from, and and what should I do with these numbers in general that I'm receiving? I mean, I'm I'm not a scientist. I'm just reading this stuff, and then I have to make my own decisions by this. And what am I? What is this accurate? Where might this come from? What might the timeline buy? But most importantly, what should I be doing with these numbers? Yeah. You know, I think just kind of stepping back and listening to both of those questions, um, the one about the younger people and the incidence yeah. of hospitalization. And then this question, you know, you say, you say you're not a scientist, but you are asking um, certain scientific questions, right? You want to know what the units are and yeah. you want to know what the denominator is. And, um, and the, those sorts of things are important as we're being, you know, thoughtful, 
um, consumers of the media and also just engaging thoughtfully with what's going on. And so, um, you know, I think that's sort of precisely, that's the, precisely the meta issue there is you have to be asking those questions um, behind, you know, what what is it behind these numbers? Mm-hmm. Steven? Yeah, so and I, I, that's absolutely right. And the, the fact is that what, what is behind all these numbers is, 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 is quite a lot and, and a lot of things that we're not um, especially certain about at the moment. And so I think I, I see sort of two things happening right now. You know, one of them is that there's all of a sudden the field of mathematical epidemiologists has grown by about tenfold in the last <laughs> month. Um, somebody showed me a curve of the exponential growth in the number of mathematical epidemiologists <laughs> over the last few months. And so, you know, I got my certification overnight from an online school. It was awesome. So, Fantastic. Know. you know, welcome to the fold. It's good <laughs> sure. to have you. It's, it's great. It's, it's an honor. Um, yeah, there was somebody who was, uh, shared an article the other day, and I, I still am not sure whether it was it was satire or not. But um, in physics, they have this thing called the Ising model, which is basically this like lattice thing. That's I, I'm, I'm way out of my depth right now, but it, it's used to like, model some sort of atomic structure. And they were applying this model to address spread of coronavirus, and they were sure that they had you know like figured out like just the right model to describe the spread of disease. You, you know, <laughs> sure. we're, sure. we're and that's it, to, to mm. a certain extent that's great. You know, people yeah. are being really creative about the ways that they're bringing together <laughs> ideas to try to understand what's going on. But, sure. you know, on the other hand, the fact is like we we're, we're pretty uncertain about, like I said before, you know, where we are in the epidemic curve and just, you know, how exactly the pathology of these things sorts of plays out. So, so on the one hand, there's this, there's this proliferation of both um, information and also very, very precise numbers that, uh, that really grab headlines. And, um, and there's, I think there's an issue where uh, when you give something a number, it makes you sound incredibly credible, right? If, if, if you tell somebody that there's going to be more cases tomorrow, you'll say, okay, fine, fine. But if you tell somebody there's going to be 382 more cases tomorrow, plus or yeah. minus 15, you know, they're going to say like, whoa, you know, you, this guy must know his stuff, yeah. right? And that's, <laughs> that's not necessarily true. You know, I, you, can, you can be incredibly precise um, is this how you got your girlfriend? Without being very accurate. Is this how you got your girlfriend, Stephen? Just by like throwing out really powerful numbers? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I... I it's so I, persuasive. I, I, <laughs> I, you know, I, I try not to, uh, to to share too many of my yeah, secrets. Sure. But, yeah, but. totally. <laughs> that's awesome. That'll be the bonus episode. Only this to... Yeah, that's right. That's right. Right. Sure. Sorry, go ahead. That's all right. But yeah, so that's, you know, that's, uh, I think that's one of the issues here is that I, and I, I'm working with a bunch of people and we're, we're in the business essentially modeling what's happening here. Mm-hmm. And the, the key thing that we're normally worried about when we're making models is to try to understand what's going on. But mm-hmm. models can also be used to make predictions in theory, right? Mm-hmm. But, uh, there's, you know, there's that wonderful Yogi Berra quote that I mentioned before, which is, I, I think it's something like predicting is really hard, especially when it's about the future, right? And that's true <laughs> whether you're just you're yeah. trying to predict something or, yeah. You know, whether you have a mathematical model behind what you're doing. So, sure. you know, we, we can make very precise predictions, but the accuracy of those is still really kind of up in the air right now. Mm-hmm. And so if, that's not to say that you shouldn't believe anything, you know, and that, you know, scientists are all sort of spitting out things that they don't really understand. And, you know, we're, we're really trying to sort of put bounds on these estimates, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. But I think that um, anytime you hear one of these numbers, it's, it's really worth sort of interpreting it with a grain of salt. And especially if it's a prediction that's being made, there's just an awful lot that we don't know. Um, and uh, the, best, the best models right now are being used to make these qualitative predictions of mm-hmm. we need to be social distancing soon, and we might need to be doing it for a while, but anybody who's trying to sort of like say something very, very precise, I'd, I'd, I'd be cautious of. Sure. Mark. 
Yeah, no, I just echo again that um, precision does not necessarily translate to accuracy um, or, or validity. Um, so just because something has a very precise number attached to it doesn't mean that it necessarily corresponds to uh, something going on in the real world. Great. Well, then that leads to our, our big topic we want to talk about as well, which is kind of this idea of precision accuracy. Uh, we saw that the new anti-malaria drug was kind of brought to the surface, kind of an urgent way to New York. I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I think roughly 1,500 people. Uh, it's been tried on in New York right now. And so I just kind of, you know, this was kind of at the helm at somewhat. I feel like some of the President Trump was kind of advancing this cause for at least a couple of weeks, I think, if not longer. And I wanted to kind of throw it to Stephen and Mark and see what you guys thought about this drug, what's kind of going on in the antiviral industry right now, and what shows the most promise, starting with this kind of anti-malaria drug going on right now. Yeah, so we can talk a little bit about sort of the sort of the pathophysiologic basis of why we might use an anti-malarial yeah. drug um, against coronavirus, and then um, kind of look at where where this came from in terms of um, why we're proposing it as a treatment. So, you know, this is something um, hydroxychloroquine in particular is something that um, hopefully we'll we'll see some therapeutic benefit from. I think that there's been some promising in vitro studies. There was some preliminary evidence that was of kind of very is questionable quality in terms of its ability to be mapped onto to uh, our epidemic, and but there is some preliminary evidence that this may be helpful. And so, what we think, uh, so hydroxychloroquine works in. We think that it helps to reduce the amount of replication that goes on within the cell of the virus. So it goes in and it works on the uh, endosomes of cells, and it changes their pH. So the pH has to be low; it has to be very acidic for the virus to replicate appropriately, and it kind of prevents that acidification process, essentially slowing the number of new viral particles that can be created. And so as you can think about it, less viral particles uh, means less potentially less transmission and yeah. less infectivity and less uh, effects on the, the person who's infected. So that's the idea. Um, and that in the, the French study that had looked at this, there was also um, a combination with azithromycin, but it's not totally clear. It, it was a little bit foggy about which patient's uh, or what the patient characteristics were for them to add on azithromycin. They said it was to prevent secondary bacterial infections. There's also some anti-inflammatory properties that azithromycin has. And so there's this, and it was this combination, right, that was touted um, kind of in that famous tweet uh, that uh, was talking about it being a game changer, you know, and one of the biggest breakthroughs of modern medicine in terms of this fight against coronavirus. So I think... Globally, the hope is that we do see some clinical benefit from this. There's some preliminary data that there may be indeed some clinical benefit. Um, what we're not seeing are um, lots of large Ns, large numbers of very rigorous randomized clinical trials that have also corroborated that. Um, of course, this is an evolving situation. We're in something of a triage in a crisis mode. And so we do want to be employing, you know, the, the, the medications that may be of some benefit, especially for those who are critically ill. Um, and so uh, that's, I think, the rationale for, for New York using this a lot and other places too. We've, you know, we've used it in our hospital and in critically yeah. ill patients as well. Um, and so, yeah, I'm hopeful and I'm hopeful that as we use in more people, we may see a greater benefit. Now, things to, to note, you know, there are, you know, nothing comes without risks. And so there are potential, there's a relatively low side effect profile of a short course of this medication, um, but it's not 100% benign and it can change, um, you know, some of the, so, so there are potential side effects. And also the, one of the societal side effects we have to be aware of is that there are people who depend on this drug for other conditions as well. Um, sure. And so who need this drug for their rheumatologic disease 
values or things like that. And so in a similar <clears throat> scenario that we saw sort of with the, the paper masks um, where you have everybody in society kind of buying it up and using it um, yeah. and then creating in, or contributing to resource shortages in places that need it the most, mm-hmm. um, that that's something to, to bear in mind, <clears throat> especially as we're kind of talking about the, the potential promise of this sort of medication. Other things, you know, we're talking about just from a therapeutic standpoint, um, antivirals. So there have been a couple antivirals that have, um, that there are ongoing randomized clinical trials, um, remdesivir and then lopinavir, ritonavir. Um, and those have been used in different case series. And so we're, we'll see where there's evidence pending, um, related to those antiviral medications. Um, and then the other one that I think is really interesting is, um, what we're calling convalescent plasma, which is essentially the plasma of individuals who have had coronavirus and recovered. Um, and so they can actually say, separate out the plasma, which is, um, you know, the part of blood that doesn't have the blood cells, but has all of these proteins in it. And some of those proteins are antibodies, including antibodies to coronavirus. Uh, And this was recently FDA approved actually for severe COVID-19 infections. Um, So in this country for very severe cases, we can use uh, plasma that has been donated by somebody who's recovered from coronavirus. Um, And it's safety has been kind of demonstrated. We use plasma, um, you know, all the time for other other applications, um, but it'll be interesting to see sort of if this passive immunity response, so giving somebody antibodies, especially yeah. in that early phase in illness before their immune system gets ramped up really aggressively, if that may actually have some clinical benefit as well. I'm guessing that's not widely available, though. That seems like a pretty extensive... That's right. I mean, I think it's, it's difficult, right? Because um, you have to have a, you have to have a donor who is confirmed positive, who's recovered, it goes through a process yeah. similar to blood donation, and then you have to also deliver it, you know, to a patient who needs it. It's not impossible. And I think that it's something that, um, you know, potentially with the right infrastructure, maybe we can increase the, the ability and the accessibility to, but it's not something like hydroxychloroquine where, you know, it's in every pharmacy and, and that sort of thing. Steve, anything to add about, about the antiviral uh, updates? Um, no, I mean, I think that, that that summary is basically exactly the same sorts of things that we've been thinking about from the epidemiology side. Um, and, you know, the other thing that, that we're thinking about is that, you know, of course, you know, the, the clinical benefits of these things are, are great. And, you know, that's, that's the first thing we should be thinking about. But, of course, having a treatment in hand can also reduce the duration of illness, which then helps sort of bring down the epidemic curve as well. And if it prevents people from getting as critical of an infection, that can also, you know, reduce burden on critical care resources and that sort of thing. So both on an individual scale, I think that these things can be very helpful, but also sort of in this broader like population sense, these treatments can really have a profound effect. So as Mark was saying, you know, it's we're really too early in any of them to know exactly what the effect is going to be, really, if if any. But um, but we've been thinking a lot about how how these things might affect the uh, the epidemic moving forward. And I am I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, that some of these things will will hopefully come through. So yeah, and that being said, I think just to emphasize again that really it's the social distancing, it's the good hygiene. Yeah. Those are the things that are going to matter um, the most, um, especially in this acute period. And these other things are hopefully going to help and contribute to that. But if there is going to be something that's really going to change what we see, um, I think it's these things that we've been talking about every single week. Um, and it's really that that epidemiologic shift that needs yeah. to happen. Uh, and that's where we need to put the majority of our emphasis. And I think that's Absolutely. a good that's a good PSA. I think it's, it's, it's easy for us to be like, hey, new antiviral. That sounds promising. I'm going out. 
you know, uh, and like, no, <laughs> so, so uh, uh, that's, uh, that is not what we're saying right. uh, at this point in time. Uh, I want to go, I want to bring back that bookmark from the beginning, but isn't it, or am I wrong that this anti, the anti, anti, uh, uh, what am I saying? Antibody. Antibody. Uh, yeah. Anti, yeah. Sorry. Anti, it, we're talking yeah. about against something, but I don't yeah. know what we're against. <laughs> we're, not, yeah, we're against something. Yeah. We're against, we're against something. <laughs> yes. Okay. We are against malaria. <laughs> Fundamentally, I have a sign in my front yard and it is yeah. big. So, uh, uh, <laughs> The anti-malarial drug, it has some side effects. I, I, I thought I read one article about it has shown it sometimes some heart failure at times, uh, the drug on some level, maybe in France or something that may or may not be beside the point. But I want to bring back, Mark, what you said off the uh, off the air for recording about there seems to be uh, some more information about maybe how coronavirus is infecting uh, the human body that uh, may be a little bit more than just the the lungs, but traveling to some other place as well and causing some damage. Can you speak into that? One of the things that's been talked about a lot in the last couple of weeks or so in the clinical environment has been the cardiac involvement with coronavirus uh, infections. And so we've talked a lot from the beginning about this is a respiratory virus, right? It's predominant yeah. mode of transmission is through respiratory secretions. It creates a pneumonia um, and inflammation in the lungs. It can lead to ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome, um, which is sort of an overwhelming inflammatory response of the lungs. Um, and uh, so those are those are issues and those are things that we see with respiratory viruses. Um, what we're seeing with coronavirus is that there also seems to be um, myocardial involvement, so involvement of the muscle of the heart. Um, and so especially, so particularly in cases, um, there, there seems to be a higher mortality rate in individuals who have evidence that their heart is involved in this process. Um, and so we, uh, there are certain biomarkers that we can use. One of the ones that um, has been used is just a troponin. So troponin is something that is checked sometimes to see if somebody's having a heart attack uh, or a myocardial infarction. Um, and uh, we can also see the troponin anytime that heart muscle cells are damaged. Um, what we're seeing is that in patients with documented coronavirus infections who have evidence of heart damage, um, the mortality rates are higher. And it can be from either a decreased squeeze of the heart, so decreased function, it's not squeezing as strongly, uh, or it can be from arrhythmias. Um, and so essentially you make uh, the heart muscle more irritable. Um, and since it relies on electric electrical signals, electrochemical signal signals to uh, mm. contract, you can actually create um, arrhythmias that can be potentially fatal. And so we, you know, why I think is one of the big questions, why is this respiratory virus affecting people's yeah. hearts and what's going on? And so, um, we do know that the virus relies on a particular a particular enzyme um, to get into the cells that's present on a lot of vasculature, a lot of blood vessels. Um, uh, and so there's a potential that it actually can directly invade heart muscles or that it causes vascular injury, blood vessel injury that somehow then translates upstream to cardiovascular injury to heart injury. So, um, you know, this is something there's been a lot of uh, recent publications, um, JAMA Cardiology published two um, recent cohort studies from China um, of decent numbers of patients uh, that are looking particularly at this these cardiac complications. Um, and so I think it's definitely something we're paying a lot more attention to. So does that mean that uh, it would be okay to say that people who have either preexisting heart conditions or anything like that, or, or maybe are, have an elevated risk? Yeah, and that's something that we've known. Um, and so that I think that's also important to emphasize is that this, even though we're characterizing this a little bit, getting a little better understanding of what's going on 
on a in a pathophysiologic yeah. basis um, that the patient characteristics the things that put people at highest risk mm-hmm. is still pretty consistent with what we've understood Good. in the past okay. um, and so what this does is i think it puts a little bit of a uh, more of an understanding about potentially what is what is the process why are we seeing why are individuals um, disproportionately affected who have underlying heart disease and hypertension for instance mm-hmm. okay um, and so potentially i think this is helping us to flesh out our understanding of this virus Going a little bit further than this, I re- I heard this from somebody. Okay, so high blood pressure. Does that mean somebody who already has high blood pressure and but has it under control, right, through medication? And then I heard that maybe I heard from somebody say, well, that some medications have steroids and then that lowers your immune system, so then now you're part of the the risk. Like when it comes to hypertension, yeah. what's who's at risk? Well, so that's a great question. There has been, and so this is again we're in we're we're in an area where we don't know for sure, sure. But there's some some interesting thoughts here. So, when one of the most common medications to use for hypertension are called angiotensin receptor blockers, um, so ARBs or ACE inhibitors, um, angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors. And so, what these medications do is that they act actually on the same receptor that the virus uses to get into cells um, to exert a positive effect on your blood pressure. Um, okay. And so, in individuals who've been maintained on these medications for a while or who have other comorbidities, sometimes the number of receptors is actually upregulated. So you have more of the ACE2 enzyme on your cells uh, than an individual who doesn't take one of those medications. So the question, you know, the hypothesis is that maybe does having more of those receptors result in a different kind of virologic response or more ports of entry? You know, you've got more doors on your cell. Okay. I, this is just, it's very important to emphasize here that a, what we're calling a pathophysiologic plausibility, so yeah. a plausible mechanism, is not the same thing as a demonstrated uh, link or, or conclusive evidence. And so we, it's very important to have randomized clinical trials yeah. um, to understand, to actually develop a causative link. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not enough to just have a plausible uh, relationship. And I think, so there are currently the recommendations from the governing bodies, the expert opinions from our cardiology bodies is that for patients who have comorbidities like high blood pressure, who have a good indication to be on those medications yeah. that we shouldn't stop them. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, in the case that there's this potential, maybe possible, you know, the, the, linkage between the virus. Uh, but what you're, what people are hinting at, I think, is again, this, these are hypothesis generating observations. These are important observations that then get plugged in to our scientific method as we characterize this disease process more. Well, uh, as we could get close to the end of this, I kind of want to just throw this question up to you guys. I didn't put this in notes, but it kind of goes back to uh, what I do at Living the Real and just talking about there's different areas of this kind of pursuit of living the most real life, especially in the time of difficult time like this. And I mentioned the ordered life and the four pillars, but one of the biggest things I've just learned of, of, the, of the four pillars and the ordered life and uh, is this idea of looking at the gift in certain circ- certain circumstances. And I know it can be hard, but it really is a game changer. At least for me, it has been a huge game changer. It's so easy to fall prey to like, oh, why is this happening to me? Why is my rate going down? Why am I losing money? And uh, why are things the way they are? Uh, why have I lost what I've lost? And uh, not really looking this as an opportunity. It can be hard. And there really is a really uh, an authentic time to grieve. And I'm not trying to say we don't grieve. Grieving is important. It's actually indispensable for a transition and for healing and, and to actually have 
uh, a, a gift-like process or a gift-like mentality. So I want to pose it back to you guys. And a lot of what we just said in the, in the, over the weekend, what's been the gift for you in, in, like, when it comes in the news, um, the hope, uh, what's going on, the advances? Uh, there's some good stuff going on here. We just talked about a few things, but throwing it your way first, like, what do you see as an important gift in this, in this, in this particular moment where we're at as of Monday, uh, whatever day it is, March 30th, because I have no idea what time it is, uh, March 30th, Monday, where's the gift in this right now, Stephen? Yeah, so uh, I think I'm going to take this in the, the direction of, you know, so uh, here in Boston, as in many other places, we've now been doing this social distancing thing for a couple of weeks now. And I think that, you know, in uh, some social theory that I saw at some point, it, it, it takes a certain number of days to build up a habit, right? Mm-hmm. And we're basically entering upon that number of days in which a new habit is built. And so we're psychologically, I can sort of feel myself sort of transitioning into sort of a new a new mode of life now. And it really does feel like a, a certain shift. And, and with that shift, I've been I've been noticing some very odd, odd things. And one of these is something that I had a conversation with our Aunt Patty last night about, which was that I'm beginning to, to notice things that are that are not sort of restricted in the way that other things are restricted. So the thing that we both connected on last night was water. Um, the fact that, you know, the fact that we're having a lot of trouble, like finding flour and how, you know, we can't, we don't have eggs in the house right now and all of these sorts of things. But I was, I was sitting, I, I was in the shower the other day and I was just, I was just blown away by the fact that I could turn on the faucet <laughs> and hot water would come out and it was hot water and it was clean water. And, you know, and it was just like remarkable because, you know, we can't go outside much, you know, yeah. there's all of these things that we're now sort of deprived of. And I was like, wow, this thing that I've always had is I'm, I'm like seeing with, with a new, with a new lens, with a new light and like recognizing that, that not everybody in the world has even, has even that. Mm-hmm. And just really there, there was like this deep appreciation for this, like really yeah. simple, but really sort of like life giving thing. That's just like coursing through the pipes of my apartment building. just like unthinkable, right? But I'd never, <laughs> yeah, I'd never considered something like that. Right. Sure. And so that, uh, that for me was, was the greatest gift was, was this moment of just being like, wow, like this, this, like what a, what an incredible thing this is. Mark, how about you? I was just kind of talking to, I have a really good friend who um, lives in New York state and he just wrote an article for the Washington post that's entitled uh, my fellow landlords, let's, let's give our tenants a break on their rent next month. Um, and one of the things that you had talked about a little bit was this, this idea of, of generosity and, and the different ways that kind of unexpected generosity. Yeah. Uh, I, I'd love to hear you kind of riff on that a little bit. Cause you, we were talking about it just before the show started. And uh, it, what was, what's the word that you used just cause I, Oh, the, like, the, unusual, right? Uh, yeah, unusual. Just unusual acts of generosity. Just, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, yeah, I love just, that. And it's, it's good because it also conjures up this idea of like very eccentric acts, you know, <laughs> yeah, strange. Totally, yeah, right? so strange. Like, like, that, is, is, that is generosity. That's a, that's a separate, cat- yeah, that's a separate no, category, but, that's awesome. uh, which I like also. But, yeah, uh, yeah. but just this idea of like, you know, that, that as we've talked about, you know, what are ways that we can exhibit generosity within our communities and, and relationships of real virtue of, of sorts, you know, with yeah. people for whom that relationship is often more transactional. Um, and so, just wanted to shout out to Eitan, uh, Rockstar, getting the article in the Washington Post. But also just, I think that sentiment and the fact that that sentiment is kind of coming up through uh, through all of this is really, really cool. For me, gosh, a lot of things. I mean, I did, I, there, I don't, I'm sure you guys are picking up on this. Like, okay, say before coronavirus happened, uh, just a very polemical atmosphere. 
I just feel this, this insurgence of solidarity. Now I go, I know there's still people on different sides of the fence of uh, how we should behave and, and uh, deal with this, but just seeing the, you know, the uh, uh, malaria antiviral, just that, you know, being, being pushed forward, just whether it's right or wrong, just this in, intense desire for solidarity and, and healing and, and uh, a passion uh, to, to, to remove this. And that's been really exciting. And I've been kind of just feeling it just emotionally. I don't know where it's going in my life right now. Like I just feel this like solidarity within myself, which is weird. Uh, that sounds like self-absorption, but, uh, so, but there is, there is a sense of solidarity. That just, I'm it's feeling. just integration. <laughs> integration. That's a much better. Yeah. I'm just like, it's like totally just being rhetorical about being self-absorbed. <laughs> like, wow, he sounded so nice. He just, he just, he's, but he he's actually just, logged out a few minutes ago, Matt. I hope yeah, you're, yeah, you're totally. That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, yeah, totally. So that's been a big, big gift for me, uh, as well as uh, just, uh, yeah, the generosity. It's so key uh, for living a fulfilled life of just doing these unusual acts of generosity expands the heart. It brings hope to life. Um, I, I know, you know, my biggest thing is, uh, gosh, it was 11, 13 years ago. I went my first like uh, mission trip to New York city and all of it was my first experience with the homeless, uh, and like on a, on a day-to-day level, like just talking to them. And I feel embarrassed to say this, but before that, I never really talked to them and just entered in their lives. And so I, I, I was forced into this, like, uh, really unusual, but yet small act of generosity to just sit with them like at midnight on the streets in the Bronx uh, and hear their life. And I remember coming back and feeling like my life was, so, my heart was so much bigger. I was so more excited about life. And, I just, and that was like a paradigm shift for me that here's my, my caveat that I've yet to actually integrate in my life in 13 years later. But it was a profound moment of like, oh my gosh, I am made to be a gift to myself and I suck fundamentally at it. Like, but, but yet I know it's true. Cerebral in my head, I know I'm meant to be a gift to another person. And I have a whole story that I'm not going to get into. Maybe another one that like solidified this when I had was forced to, okay, I'll just tell you the story. Uh, it was good. I'll try to make it quick. Uh, we were in a group and it was five of us and we're, we're helping these sisters uh, uh, update their classroom, which was just a pit. And there was a wood, ca- a word, a wood ca- uh, carving station uh, where you had to cut frames for the kids. And that was awesome because you had real power tools and I could cut and I'm a guy and I wanted to do that. And then there was like this art and craft section where you drew art to put in the frames. Like, oh, that sounds terrible. Like, I don't want to do that. I'm not like a craft person. And then there was this third where you just had to clean a bookshelf. I'm like, that sounds like the worst. And so uh, I initially wanted to do the wood, but then I was the leader and I felt bad. So I'm like, oh, I can't just like, you know, strip the, the students away from it and then me to the wood, wood cutting. So I allowed myself to do the worst one, which was the, uh, the bookshelf. And uh, so I was like, just all alone. I'm the only person alone in this far corner cleaning this plastic bookshelf that had these like eight crates in the back, these little squares, like 600 of them that I would just like individually with a little washcloth, try to like wash. And I remember just thinking to myself how pointless this was and how irritated I was that I had to do this. And I remember just thinking to myself, just kind of hearing this voice in my head saying, do you know why you're doing this? I'm like, I have no clue. I'm like, um, because, because I end up a little bit of the story. I washed it. I spent like an hour doing it. And then when it dried, it looked the same. Like I didn't wash it. I was like, what? <laughs> I'm now I'm irate. Like it still looks crappy. And so I remember thinking, I'm like, why? Why did this happen? This voice came to me and kind of said in my head and it said, do you know why? I'm like, well, I have no idea why. I'm like, because one day you're going to have a wife and maybe you're going to wake up one day and you're not going to, you're not going to desire to want to love her, right? Just, just maybe you're irritated, you're frustrated, you're angry, but you're still called to love, right? You're still to be generous in the midst of actually your frustration. 
And, and this is with expanding my capacity to actually love in the midst of not wanting to do it. It's for a good. And then the biggest caveat was that I was like, I was, I was you know, just kind of talking and, and I heard this, the, the voice in my head say this, like, cause I asked the question like, well, then why, then why on heck did I clean this book out of love and then nothing happened? So well, in this voice came in my head and like, well, the key to this is that, uh, yes, you're called to love, but you're called to love for love's sake, not for change, right? Not for change. And so then the bookshelf remained the same, the dirty old stupid book bookshelf, and I was supposed to do it for its own sake. And so this whole mission trip was profoundly changed my life that I still need to integrate into my own life. But this idea that we're called to give of ourselves, and the only way to do this is to build that muscle. And uh, Mark, you were saying the habits and that kind of stuff, building these habits, Stephen, talking about the habits. Uh, yeah, Stephen, you were talking about the habits of how long it takes a habit and building these small habits. We can't do them big in big ways. It's too hard, but really unusual, small acts of generosity you can do, right? Um, to, to, to spend five minutes giving your spouse, uh, you know, a shoulder massage like that, just that, that you don't normally do. It expands your capacity, it brings joy to your life, and you get out of this kind of worry, worrisome element. So... That's that's my long diatribe on this generosity and how important it is in finding the gift in things. And uh, do you guys have any final thoughts on that? I think it's great. I mean, I think just um, emphasizing so much, and I think it ties to everything we're doing about, it's not always like the big spectacular things that make a difference. You know, this pandemic is a really good indication of that and um, that it is, it is about just like sticking, sticking it through and, and being deeply committed to those mundane things that may not bear a lot of fruits in their immediate. Yeah. It wasn't, um, yeah, I think that's really a great reminder for me. I so, appreciate ba- that. so basically this episode will be titled hashtag, where is your bookshelf? So that's it. That's where's, right. where's <laughs> your bookshelf? Right. So I've got more than one. Yeah, I got, I got three, I got three <laughs> bookshelves. They're called Kieran, Jude and Everett. <laughs> so, and they're always dirty, no matter how much I give them a bath. So anyway, it was great to be on with you guys. I uh, hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have any questions, you can tweet directly Stephen at S T E P H E N K I S S L E R. Or if you have any questions about me, about me or questions to me, <laughs> that's, 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 too, there, that's too personal. That's too, uh, I told you that bookshelf still needs to be ingrained in my heart. Don't be self-absorbed. Um, <laughs> Yeah, if you have questions about the show, you can uh, tweet me, M-A-T-T-B-O-E-T-T-G-E-R. If you want more information about Living the Real, livingtheril.com, please, if you can, donate 5 10 whatever. We appreciate someone just donated $25 a month yesterday. So greatly appreciate it. It helps us to get the equipment we need. Uh, if you can, we'd greatly appreciate it. Uh, you can find us also on Twitter. We have the handle pa- Pandemic Cast. Uh, if you want to follow that as well. In Anyway, we hope you have a wonderful day, and we will see you on Thursday. Take care. Bye-bye.